Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today, uh, we are going to be starting a new series, a little two-part series, this week and next week, on generous living. And here's our plan. Today, we're going to talk about this topic of generous living from the heart level. How is it that on the interior of our lives, there's a change that takes place that enables us to live a generous life? We're going to talk about that today. Next week, we'll get into more of the practicality of that, what it looks like as we live that out day to day, week to week. Um, And so that's our plan for the next couple of Sundays. But today, we're going to talk about at a heart level how God produces a generosity inside of us. But before we do that, I want to just ask you a question. When was the last time, the last time that you made a decision that you felt like, what do I have to lose? When was the last time you made a decision of any consequence where you felt like, what do I have to lose? Now, for some of you, that might have been earlier today or this this past week. Uh, For others of you, you might have to go back a few years because you feel like at this point in your life, you have a lot to lose. But let's just go back to the last time you made a decision of any consequence that you felt like, what do I have to lose? For me, I think back to the summer of 1994. Summer of 1994, there was a young woman named Kimberly Atwater that I had an interest in, and I wanted to spend some time dating her. And so as I thought about beginning that conversation and going over and initiating uh, with her, I remember thinking as I was driving over to her house to have that conversation, I remember thinking, what do I have to lose? At the time, I, I had no relationship over here, and the thought of, this sounds sappy, but it's so true, the thought of not having her in my life was worse than the thought of her rejecting me in that moment. So I remember thinking as I drove over there, what do I have to lose? I, I went over and I, I initiated it. And, and when I asked her if she wanted to date me, of course she said, no. Um, but thankfully, a few days later, there was a reconsideration, and as they say, the rest is history. Um, but when was the last time that you made a decision of any consequence where you felt like, what do I have to lose? Now, let me ask it another way. When was the last time you made a decision of consequence that felt risky to you? Now, we don't have to think back as far for that oftentimes, do we? Because many times when we make a decision, uh, we feel like we're risking something. Think about if you have a job, you have a career that you like, but there's another opportunity in another town that would cause you to have to move and yet you, you feel like that's maybe what you should do. That's a risky kind of decision, isn't it? You feel like you're risking something. You've got something you like here. You're risking it to go and do something else. For others of you, it might be related to uh, college education. All of your friends are going to owe you. It would feel really easy to, to step there. There's something that you know, a city that you know, people that you know. And yet, for whatever reason, the opportunity at Texas A&M looks a little better to you. You don't know anybody down there, but it feels a little risky to to leave this place and to go to that one. You've got savings in the bank, but you feel like maybe you should take some of those savings and invest them in a new venture that that looks promising that you're interested in 
It feels a little risky to make those kinds of decisions, doesn't it? When was the last time you made a decision that felt a little risky? Well, today, as we talk about our heart and generosity, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that deals with a man who felt like he was taking a big risk. We're going to look at uh, the story that is found, a historical event of Jesus' interaction with a man in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, an interaction that clearly looked like this man had something to lose. So let's take a look at those verses together. I want to read them for us, Mark 10, 17 through 31, and then we'll back up and look at it a little more in depth in kind of three movements before we celebrate the Lord's table together. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 begins this way. It says, now as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Well, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything, and we have followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, I want us to look at this true account of Jesus' interaction with this man, and I want us to see three things. The first thing that I think we need to see is that this is a story about a man who had everything. It's a story about a man who had everything. Now, where do we see that in the story? We we see it unfolded in the details that we find out about this man's life. And if we were to break it down, we would see all of the things this man had going for him. The first thing that we see that this man had going for him is that he was rich. As a matter of fact, this story is told in three different Gospels. It's told in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. And in all three Gospels, The one fact about this man's life that is repeated all three times is that he was rich. This is a guy who had considerable possessions, we find out as the story goes on. He was someone of great means. 
Uh, certainly that is something that we feel like we have going for us. Uh, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but we played the game of life in my house over Christmas break a little bit, the board game life. Uh, does anybody know how you win the game of life? By having the most money at the end. And we laugh at that as a children's game, but the reality is many of us are playing by those rules. If we have money, we feel like we're winning. If we don't have money, we feel like we're losing. This is a man that appears to be winning in life. He's a man of considerable means. It's one of the things we see about him. Another thing that we see about him is that he is young. Not mentioned in this account in Mark, but back in Matthew chapter 19, verse 22, we find out that this man was young. And youth is somewhat of a a blessing, a, a value, right? You have opportunity in front of you. You have strength and energy. Now, this man was not just wealthy, but he also had his whole life ahead of him. Last week, uh, Kevin Bradford talked to us about uh, William Borden. We talked about how he was a young man of considerable means. This man in this story is someone that would have fit that description also. He was young and he was rich. Not only that, but he also was a ruler. We, we see this in Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Interesting, you take all three gospel accounts of this story and we find out the common name that we refer to it as the story of the rich young ruler. When we say that he's a ruler, it's also talking about some of what he had. He had influence in his society. We don't know exactly what he was ruling. Was he some kind of mayor or or governor or city official? But it appears somewhat from the context that, that possibly he was a ruler or a leader in a synagogue, a place where Jewish people gathered to worship. He was someone of some influence with a good reputation in his city. He had that going for him as well. But not only was he a rich young ruler, but also he appears to be a person that had good manners, doesn't he? I mean, he runs up to Jesus. How does he approach him? He gets down on his knee. He kneels before him. He interacts with him on that level. He, he extends pleasantries to Jesus and, and flattery. He appears to be somebody that had good, good, good manners. But not only does he have good manners, but he also is someone who had good morals, He had good morals. Uh, Jesus lists a number of commandments, and he's able to say with a straight face, I have kept all of those since my youth, and no one laughed, at least not recorded in the Scripture. He's somebody that appears to have good morals, that had a good reputation in his ability to keep the law in his community. When he said that he was someone who had kept the law since his youth, it's probable he's referring back to the time of his bar mitzvah when a a Jewish boy kind of takes responsibility for his own life. From that point forward, he said he was a person of integrity and keeping the law to the best of his ability. These were things that he had not done. He's somebody that had good manners. He's somebody that had good morals. He's a rich, young ruler. Not only that, he's near the best man who ever lived. He's standing next to Jesus. He approached the most important person. He got an audience with the king of kings, the savior of the world. He had that going for him as well. As if these other things were not enough, he also was in the presence of the Son of God. And not only that, the Son of God loved him, it says. And not only is he in the presence of the Son of God as a rich young ruler with good manners and good morals, But he also is even asking a very good question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, this is a guy who had everything. Now, 
My question is, can you identify with him? Now, at first glance, you probably are saying, no, I don't feel that privileged. But let's just reflect on this for a moment. Do we identify at all with this guy? Should we identify with this man in any way? I mean, let's think about some of the ways in which we have it all. Are we rich? Now, when I ask that, what do you do? You immediately play the comparison game, right? You think about your life and you think, well, I'm not as rich as that person, so I'm not rich. They're rich. I mean, what is the definition of rich? The person who has more than I do. That's our definition of rich, right? If you have more than me, you're rich. If you have less than me, you're poor. But that comparison game is thrown on its head when we compare what we have compared to everyone else who lives on the planet. We think about the kind of poverty that exists in the world today, and we think of the the things that we have at our disposal. I mean, how many of you got in your own vehicle to come here today? It's a demonstration of our wealth. How many of you, when you went to get dressed today, looked in the closet and made the decision, do I want to wear the white or the blue or the red or the green or the other white or the other blue or the red or the other green? It's a demonstration of our wealth. We have been blessed so many things. How many of us are here today and we haven't eaten in a week? How many of us are going to eat more than once today? How many of us have already eaten more than once already today? We're like hobbits, second breakfast. It's a demonstration of our wealth. Maybe we have more in common with this guy than we think. Are we young? Again, what is young? Somebody younger than me. That's our definition. It's why my parents can see a 60-year-old person and call them a kid, right? How does that happen? Well, it's younger than them. They're kids. As I say that, some of you in this room are identifying with youth. Others of you aren't. I'm not saying that everybody is going to hit every category here today, but many of us can identify with youth. We've got a lot of our life ahead of us. Any of us rulers? Well, maybe there's only one mayor of Norman, right? So maybe we think that we don't have anything in common there, but do any of us have any influence on our block, in our family, in our school, on our dorm floor, in our classrooms, in our vocations? Any responsibility that any of us have? How about being somebody of of good manners? Y'all are a pretty polite group of people, you know that? We smile when we see each other. We shake hands, a little greeting. How are you? Uh, we're a pleasant group of people to be around. We have some, some ability to interact with one another. It's able to, to cover over a number of our flaws, our relational skills. How about morals? You know, when I ask that question, I mean, obviously you could think of the worst of you, but many of us are trying to think of the best of us to defend our morality. Let me put it this way. How many of you had an opportunity to do something terrible this week and chose not to do it? Don't raise your hands. (laughs) We can make a case for our morality, right? We're not as bad as we could be, or we're not as bad as that person we saw on TV or the story we read about in a magazine. We're a person of, of morals. Are we near the best man who ever lived? Well, we gathered at a church today, didn't we? We're gathering around the person of Christ. We're, we're close to Him. 
in proximity as we, we look at his word and seek to listen to him today. And we're asking the right question. Many of us are here today going, Lord, what do you want from me? What is the response? See, we, we have many things in common with this list. Now, let's just do this as a survey. How many of you have all seven? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make you do that. Um, you might be one or two or three or four or five or six or seven. There's some level of connection that you have with this story. See, this is a story about the man who had everything, and if we're honest, we're people that have, at the very least, many things going for us as well. Now, how does the story continue? Not just that this is a story about a man who had everything, but this is a story about a man who had everything to lose. Because he's a person that had so much going for him, there's a, a feeling, a sense of great risk as Jesus calls him to do something fairly aggressive. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus lays down the gauntlet with this man. Now, I want to just pause for a moment and reflect on uh, what happened in this, in this moment. I mean, think about this. Somebody walks up to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, how would you expect Jesus to answer that question? Wouldn't you expect that he would reach into his back pocket and pull out of four spiritual laws and, and, and turn it around and walk them through a gospel presentation that ends with them praying a prayer to receive Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? Wouldn't you expect that that's what he would have done? And yet he doesn't do that. So in this story, is Jesus somehow um, issuing a statement against sharing Christ with others that they would receive him by faith? Absolutely not. I don't think that what Jesus is doing is saying that there's no place for a presentation of the gospel and calling people to embrace him in faith. But what Jesus is doing in this story is he recognizes that he is standing face to face because he's the sovereign God who knows all. He's standing face to face with a man who is ultimately trusting in himself for his salvation. And Jesus, in one question, is going to clarify the issue for the man. He wants this man to understand, this rich young ruler, he wants him to understand that there is something that is prohibiting him from trusting in God. That ultimately his God is not the God of the universe, his God is his possessions. And he's trusting in his wealth and he's trusting in his own ability to receive salvation. And Jesus wants to set him up to understand that in order for him to be saved, he needs something more than himself. And so Jesus, in a single question, clarifies this man's great need. Might say it another way. In order for someone to trust a Savior, they must know that they need a Savior. And Jesus makes that clear to this man with a single question. And friends, the same is true for us. We need to remember our great need. 
But Jesus comes and, and says, eternal life, trust me with this. And the man walks away disheartened because he had everything in his mind to lose. Now, before we're so hard on this rich young ruler, let's think about our connection to this story as well. Is it a challenge for you to have God at the forefront of all things in your life? Is there anything that if God asked you to give up, you would be challenged to give it up because it's so important to you or you're trusting in that ultimately for, for, your, for your life? I mean, for some of us, it, it, it might be our things. When I even read this story, you're nervous. You're wondering, what am I going to say at the end of this? Are you going to suggest that all of us need to sell everything we have and give to the poor? I, I'm, I'm, I'm out on that. It's challenging for us, right? For some of us, it is our possessions. For others of us, it is our relationships. We feel like we could trust God for, for many things, but we are challenged to trust Him in our relational area because our family is so important to us. We, we love our family so much, and we like the peace that is in our family so much, and we like the esteem that our family gives us so much that the thought of us trusting God and reaching out to them to share the gospel with them, for instance, might break up that relational dynamic so we remain silent in our home instead of sharing Christ where He wants it to be shared because ultimately our family is placed above God. Do we struggle with anything like that? You know, I'll share with you just for me personally. I'm somebody, just the way that God has wired me, I, I, I want to be liked. Anybody out there like me? Anybody want to be liked? I want to be liked. It's a challenge that I've got. I want to be liked. But what happens when trusting God and following Him might have me make a decision that might not be popular? Hey, I struggle with that. Does anybody else? I can connect to this story. Can you? The rich young ruler comes, and Jesus clarifies his need in a single question. I think Jesus could do the same thing with each of us. He could clarify our situation in a single question. Now, let me ask you, how risky was this man's decision to trust Christ? The answer to that is not as risky as he thought, right? Because this man forgot who he was talking to. He was talking to the God of the universe who loved him. And the God of the universe who loved him is someone that should have been worthy of explicit and implicit trust. The man forgot who he was talking to, and he leaned back on his own things. Jesus wants to make this clear to the man in verse 18. It says, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I think it's interesting, that little interchange. The man goes up and calls Jesus a good teacher. Now, remember, this man was a ruler, probably a ruler of a synagogue. And as a ruler of a synagogue, this man would have understood that rabbis in that day did not use the word good and teacher together. The only people that were called good, that term by rabbis was reserved for God alone. And so Jesus gives this man a, a subtle jab back and forth in the conversation. And that, that subtle jab back and forth in the conversation is, hey, you're calling me good, but you know better. If, if you're calling me good, you're calling me God. Am I really God? 
Do you really believe that to be true? I mean, Jesus is not questioning whether he's God. He's not questioning whether he's good. He's underlining the point so that the rich young ruler understood and remembered who he was talking to. He was talking to God. And he was talking to the God who loved him. When we remember that we're relating to God, we remember that we're relating to the sovereign one who has all knowledge and all power. And the one who is sovereign, who has all knowledge and all power and loves me, I ought to be willing to trust that person all the time with everything. If, if I was to think about someone who had all knowledge and power but did not love me, I might wonder about their best interest for me. If I was thinking about someone who loved me but did not have all knowledge and power, I might think they might be mistaken. But somebody that has all knowledge and all power and all ability and loves me, that's somebody that ought to be worthy of my trust. Jesus is saying to the rich young man, do you trust me? He's saying to us today, do you, do you trust me? Do you trust me? He goes on after that and he gives a couple of demonstrations of how he's worthy to be trusted. He says if in, in uh, verse 21, he says, you lack one thing, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have what? Treasure in heaven. He goes on in his conversation with Peter later, and he says that a hundredfold will come back to you for the things that you have left for the gospel and for Christ. What does all of that mean? It doesn't mean that we're going to get rich in this life or this world to unbelievable ways just because we are trusting in Christ. What it means, though, is that it's always worth it to trust God always worth it. The one who is sovereign, the one who is, is holy, the one who loves us is worthy of our trust in all things. It's always worth it. We need to remember who it is that we're relating to. And know this, there is nothing that can compare to that. Nothing. Warren Wearsby reflected on this as it relates to money as a substitute for God. He says this, he says, money is a marvelous servant but a terrible master. If you possess money, be grateful and use it for God's glory. But if money possesses you, beware. It is good to have the things that money can buy, provided you don't lose the things that money cannot buy. The deceitfulness of riches had so choked the soil of this young man's heart that he was unable to receive the good seed of the word and be saved. What a bitter harvest he would reap one day. Friends, we need to remember who we're talking to. When we do that, we realize that our decision to trust Christ is not as risky as we first imagined that it would be. Now, I want to ask a question as we begin to wrap this time up. And that question is this. Does Jesus ask us to do hard things? Does Jesus ask us to do hard things? I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. Now, let, as we think about that, let's be real honest. Is asking someone to liquidate all that they have and give to the poor, is that a hard thing? Please say yes. At least it is for me, right? That would be a hard thing. Jesus is asking of the rich young man this extremely challenging thing. The question is, does Jesus ask us to do hard things? Now, before I answer that, I want to just make this caveat. I, again, I don't think that the point of this story is to set a pattern of, of communism or of not holding any private possessions. I don't think that's the, the point of the story. I think that Jesus asked a very pointed question to one man, and it's recorded in Scripture for all of us to be challenged by on two levels. One, what, do we, what has ultimate authority in our lives? And second, just God's desire for generosity. I think it, both of those things come clear in this passage. But this is 
a very hard thing that is asked, right? So even if God is not asking you this morning to liquidate all you have and give to the poor, does God ask us to do hard things? And friends, the answer to that is no. The answer to that is no. What God asks us to do are impossible things. God doesn't ask us just to do hard things. God asks us to do impossible things. And and we see that played out in the story, don't we? Because the man walks away and Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this was so shocking to the disciples because in their day, and sometimes in our day too, we put together riches and God's blessings. So that if somebody had a lot of things, it would be considered that God was blessing them in a significant way. And so here's this man who has all these things going for him. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, he's got good manners, he's got good morals, he's in the presence of Christ, he's asking the right questions. If that guy can't be saved, the disciples are saying, then who could possibly be saved? That's really what they're asking. I mean, they're amazed and astonished that that guy did not get the high five from Jesus, that he got such a a stern talking to, that he was asked such a difficult question. They're amazed at that point. So what does Jesus do? Well, he doubles down. After making that statement, he, he goes right on and he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. What was the largest animal that lived in the Middle East at this time? Hint, the answer is in the passage. It's the camel, right? The biggest animal is the camel. Small, small space that you can think of, the eye of a needle. Now, some people have tried to do all kinds of fun uh, linguistic gymnastics with this and talk about how this is talking about camels going through small gates and cities. And Friends, that's not the point. The point is just what it sounds like in our good old English Bible. How can a camel fit through the eye of a needle? The answer to that is it can't. And what Jesus' point is this, it is impossible, it is impossible for us to take our goodness, our morality, our uh, manners, our wealth, our youth, our proximity inside churches, whatever it is, it's impossible for us to take all those things that we feel like that we have going for us and to use them as some kind of an argument that God would accept us into his presence forever. It's absolutely impossible for that to happen. The only way for any of us to be saved is by God doing something for us that we cannot do on our own. It's for God to do a miracle. And that miracle is when he takes Jesus' death on the cross and he makes it sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins. And he takes the righteousness of Christ and he clothes us in that righteousness and he looks at us and he calls us righteous and he looks at Jesus and he calls him sin and we are forgiven and united to him forever. That is an impossible act that goes beyond our ability. The point of this story with this man is that he needed to come to a spot where he realized that his salvation was an impossible task in his own power. 
And the point for us today, friends, for many of us, when we think about this and connected to our salvation, is for us to remember that it is impossible for us to save ourselves. There are some of you who are here today who have, are on the edges of Christianity. You have come today because somebody has invited you, and, and church is always something for somebody else, and maybe you, you like the music or you think it's interesting or you're here to appease somebody else who's here. For whatever reason, you're here today. And when you hear people who are Christians talk to you about trusting in Christ and the assurance they have of their salvation, you are offended at one level because here's what you think we're saying. You think that what we're saying is that we are right and righteous and we have gained God's favor and you haven't and you need to do something to make God like you better. He likes me more than you. But this story reminds all of us of this different reality. All of us who are followers of Christ understand that our salvation is not about us, it's about Him. It's not about what we could do, it's about what He has done for us. It's about God doing the impossible for us, and because God did the impossible for us, we believe God can do the impossible for you as well, and we want you to trust Christ as we have. When it comes to our eternity, our salvation is found when we realize that Jesus is enough for the forgiveness of our sins and our hope for eternity. God wants to do the impossible in us and to us and through us. And here's the thing, and here's how it connects to this passage in this series where we're talking about generous living. That same principle also applies to our generosity. You know what? It is not hard for us to be generous as God has called us to be generous. It is impossible for us to be generous as God has called us to be generous on our own. In order for us to live out that kind of generosity, it's going to take a revolution of our souls, a revolution of our hearts. And guess what? God is in the business of doing the impossible. What is not possible for man is absolutely possible for God. And God wants to do a revolution to our souls. He wants to cleanse our hearts and empower us through the Spirit to have a generosity that is not normal and that can be sustained. See, when we are going to talk about generosity, and next week we're going to, get to talk about the specifics of what it looks like to live generously and, and to give and all of those kinds of things, we're going to look at that next Sunday. But before we ever get to that spot, we need to remember that it is only possible because of what God has done for us and because of what He has done in a continuing way through the work of the Spirit in our lives. Because of that, it's possible for us to be generous as He is generous. It's possible for God to do the impossible in our lives. Now, when that happens, we see the generosity of God begin to show up as we embrace who God is, we remember who we're meeting with, and we see Him begin to transform our heart with His truth. What does that that look like? Well, it begins with us realizing that we don't own anything, that ultimately God owns it all, and we just steward the resources he's extended to us for a season. That is anchored in the truth when we remember that we're dealing with the God who owns all things. This is his world. He created it. He has the deed. We remember that this is God's world. We're able to relate to him in a way that has less attachment to our things. It's part of the revolution of our souls. How is it that we're able to view the things that come into our world, our life, our system, not as something that is intended for me only, but for others. That when you are given a gift, it's not just so that you have more, it's 
could be that God wants to bless others through you. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from God himself that's able to do a transformation of our souls and hearts because God is a giver and not a taker. When we understand that, we're, there's a generosity that flows from us. It's a, it's a miracle. It's God doing the impossible through us. How is it that we can view when we give on Sunday mornings as we did earlier that it's not like the God tax? I'll put a little in here this week. Maybe it'll keep God off my case for another week. It's not a God tax. It's partnering with God for what he's doing in the world. It's a fellowship, a relationship to a father and a child. We're a child of God. This is all his. We get to partner with him. It's joyous for us to join him in that mission. Where does that come from? It's, it's not normal. It comes by God doing a revolution of our hearts and our lives. That's where this generosity comes from. How, how could we understand the things that God has entrusted us with as something that could lay up treasure in heaven that looks forward to the day when we would have eternal life. That comes not normally, not naturally. It comes from God doing the impossible, allowing our life now to matter then. Friends, when we gather here today, we need to remember who we're meeting with and know that he wants to do not just some hard things for us, he wants to do some impossible things through us. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about what that looks like. Now, as we wrap up our time, we're going to do so by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And at Wildwood, if you've been around here, we celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, several times a year as we take the bread and, and cup that symbolize for us the body and the blood of Christ. And as we do this, we're joining in a tradition for over 2,000 years. Christians have taken these two elements and remembered that Jesus is more than enough for us. As we gather these elements, we remember that his death on the cross is more than enough to pay the penalty for our sins. As we gather these elements in our hands, we remember that his righteousness is more than enough to make us the opportunity to have an eternal life with God forever. As we hold these elements in our hands, we remember that he is more than enough to be the God, the one who's sovereign in our lives, that we could trust him with all things, including the possessions that he has given to us, allowing us to steward for a season. And so, friends, as we gather here today, I want us to end by taking into our hands and then consuming into our bodies these elements that remind us that God is more than enough for us. And the way that we're going to do that is our team is coming forward and they're going to be passing these elements. And if you have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, whether that was five minutes ago or whether that was 50 years ago, we invite you to take of these elements and then hang on to them. And we're going to sing as these elements are passed um, and then we will partake of them together uh, when we're instructed to do so. So let me pray and then we will we'll sing in pass these elements together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship today. Thank you for the truth of your word, and thank you for the fact that Jesus is enough for us. Father, as we take these elements in our hands, we are uh, making a statement, uh, living out a sermon, showing that you are more than enough for our needs. And so, Father, I pray that you would be honored now in the attitudes of our heart as we sing and as we grab these elements together. In Jesus' name we pray. 